The information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available are for general informational purposes only. Welcome to Rights Here, Rights Now, the podcast about disability, advocacy, and activism. I'm your advocate host, Suzanne Herbst. And I'm your advocate host, Valerie Jones. Every two weeks, we dig into relevant issues, current events, and avenues for self-advocacy. But someone has to. And it might as well be us. This podcast is produced by the Disability Law Center of Virginia, the Commonwealth's Protection and Advocacy Agency for Disability Rights. Find out more at dlcv.org. We'd like to introduce Jax Caswell. He is a social work intern here at DLCV. He and another intern put together this amazing presentation for our entire staff recently. And he wanted to share this information and research here on the podcast. We are so excited to have him on. We have loved having him work here in the office and we're so excited for him to share his knowledge and his research. Uh, But before we jump in, let's check out Disability in the News. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Community Living has allocated $1.75 million over the next five years towards a new incentive. This incentive will focus on helping better prepare future doctors and other healthcare professionals to treat people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. This incentive will bring together five universities to study existing trainings and develop materials and standardized practice experiences that can be incorporated into new curriculums. This grant and initiative is crucial as many medical schools do not include content about the needs of individuals with disabilities in their current curriculum. Obviously, this too often leads to poor health outcome for this population. The project will be called Partnering to Transform Health Outcomes with Persons with Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities will involve people with intellectual and developmental disabilities in their families at every stage. Thank you so much for being with us today, Jax. We are so happy to have you. We are also just generally happy to have you as our so, one of our social work interns in our office. So thank you so much for everything you've brought, um, especially this presentation that we now get to share on the podcast with our listeners. Uh, before we begin talking about statistics and advocacy efforts, can you give us a little background with some terminology so we're ensuring we are all using the right language? I would love to. So. Um, Some of the just introductory terms to know, um, the main term that you would use to describe people in this population would be transgender. Um, I know some terms like transsexual are now seen as a bit outdated. Um, And since the word transgender is an adjective, you wouldn't really use the word like transgendered. You would just say someone is transgender. Um, And so the shorthand word for that would just be the word trans. You would say someone is a trans man or a trans woman. which a trans man is someone who was assigned female at birth, but now um, goes about life as a man. And someone who is a trans woman is someone who was assigned male at birth who now goes about life as a woman. Um, And then you have the term non-binary for people who are just um, people who don't really identify as being either a man or a woman. They're somewhere 
they, they just completely define it for themselves. It's um, their own experience. And yeah, then you can get into terms like gender dysphoria, which is just uh, the descriptor for the disconnect that comes between sex assigned at birth and gender identity and a lot of the, um, you know, perpetuating feelings that can kind of come out of that disconnect. And so, yeah, that's just some of the, some of the important terms to know. Yeah, thank you so much. I know that I'm sure a lot of our listeners and just people in general want to make sure that they're using the right terms, but just don't really, you know, haven't done the research, aren't sure what to do. So we appreciate you, especially taking the time at the beginning of the podcast to go over that. Of course. Okay, Jax. Um, the next question I would like to ask is, can you share some data with us regarding disability and identification in Virginia? I would love to. So um, earlier this year, um, Governor Ralph North, Governor Ralph Northam, he um, released sort of a statement about disability where he um, included the fact that an estimated one in 10 Virginians has a disability. And I was doing some more research about trans people with disabilities and just trans demographics in general. And as it turns out, 39% of respondents to a fairly large nationwide survey um, reported having a disability. So that's a lot higher than the one in 10 ratio. Um, so if you were to apply around, it's an estimated 0.55% of Virginians identified openly as transgender. And so if you were to just sort of do some quick math and apply those statistics together, you could estimate around 13,455 trans people with disabilities live in Virginia. But I can imagine that number might be a lot higher just based on people who might not have self-reported um, as either demographic. So it can be, you know, that's a pretty, that's just a, a pretty low estimate. It, it might be way higher. I'm quite sure a lot of people are very happy about the information you have provided. Thank you so very much. So we know you've done a lot of research on this, Jack. So what does the research say um, about some of the experiences of trans people with disabilities? I think a lot of the most um, interesting, a lot of the most painful and a lot of the most um, just pertinent information really comes out of um, people in this population's interactions with healthcare. Um, as you can imagine, a lot of trans people and a lot of people with disabilities rely very heavily on healthcare because these are really important to ensure that our needs are met. But like also, you know, when it comes down to it, it can also be an area for a lot of contention if doctors don't really know much about trans issues. I, I know it said around 20% of respondents to this survey ended up having to educate their primary care provider just about transgender terms and things like that. And, you know, it, it's very possible a lot of people really do report feeling that they their doctors weren't necessarily equipped to handle one or both parts of their identity, even though healthcare is obviously very crucial. And um, I think it's also really important to talk about how discrimination and harassment also happens at pretty high rates in facilities and institutions. Um, I know a lot of trans people with disabilities even report having much higher rates of harassment and um, discrimination, even more so than just trans people who are able-bodied. Um, I think it, it's also really important to touch on how even just getting treatment 
as a trans person with a disability can be incredibly hard. Um, I know for a lot of people who might have specific like blood disorders and things like that, starting hormones can be impossible, if not incredibly dangerous and incredibly worth monitoring. Um, I know getting sort of just the sign offs to start hormone replacement therapy or receive surgery um, a lot of the times can be incredibly difficult if you have a mental illness or disability. Um, I know a lot of the doctors might have some preconceived notions about someone who's autistic or someone who has schizophrenia or something like that. And the ability to make that autonomous decision for yourself, even though, you know, someone might be completely in tune with, hey, I am trans. This is how I feel. This is what I need. And just because of what's on paper, someone might immediately be like, well, are you, you know, quote unquote, mentally sound enough to make this decision for yourself, which can be incredibly aggravating and incredibly make it so that you really have to really have to kind of be careful about what you do and don't disclose, which shouldn't necessarily be an issue if this is a crucial part of your identity. Um, I know for a lot of in a lot of the reports that I was reading, it seems like when you're a part of these two marginalized groups where there's a lot of stigma, you can especially feel that compounded stress just going about daily life and being noticed in public spaces and a lot of that sort of thing. So I think a lot of people either deal with a lot of the isolation that comes from the anxiety of having to deal with these marginalizations in, in um, public spaces or just feeling like they're very cut off from their community because so much of their identity is seen as something, you know, othering and exotic or like they just feel very othered and very unincluded and unwelcome um it can be it, it can be a lot <laughs> yeah definitely and i think you bring up such a good point that to a certain extent our society has come really far with recognizing you know transgender people but there's still so much more to go and so many more like especially like you said experiences with healthcare providers that need to be improved just by education. Um, and, you know, I think we're really, we've gotten, we've done a lot of work as a society, but I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg. So, yeah. Okay, uh, Jax, beyond all the data and research, what implications does this have for advocacy work in general? Um, I think for starters, honestly, it's just really important to get connected with members of this community. You know, despite the fact that there's this huge over overlap, there's not a whole lot of data going on. You know, I, I really had to kind of, you know, besides this one survey that I found that was really, you know, had a lot of really good information. It seems like despite there being such an overlap between the two groups, there's really not a whole lot of research on a widespread level because you know, like a lot of people are still just learning about trans issues and disability. You know, a, a lot of people are getting kind of caught up about what these communities are talking about. So I think a really important part of advocacy would just be getting to know people, reaching out to people, asking questions, um, making sure that you're approaching people respectfully. Um, you know, I, I, it's pretty it's pretty clear in a lot of disability advocacy work, you know, the kind of questions that you wouldn't ask someone, the kind of things that you wouldn't say to someone that might be sort of seen as like backhanded compliments or things like that. It, and a lot of that applies to trans people too. So I think just being mindful is an important way to get started. Um, and it's, it's definitely involved. It, it, it's definitely possible to get, um, 
to once you kind of start interacting with this group, really thinking about how you can get involved on a larger scale. I can imagine a lot of the people in these communities might have needs that they would identify very specifically that um, could sort of provide a framework for getting involved on a pretty widespread scale. Okay, so Jeff, what I want to do is thank you for educating me even further. Uh, um, I know information about the trans community, but this information you have provided has educated me even further. And I am so quite sure that once the listeners listen to this podcast, that they will be educated even further. So thank you so much for your information. Absolutely. And, you know, we're talking about advocacy work in general. So what about DLCV? What can what can we do here at Disability Law Center of Virginia to get involved? So um, I was in some of my research, I found that um, another PNA, the PNA in Washington, actually made um, improving healthcare and treatment for trans people and in institutions. They put that as one of their 2020 priorities. So it's definitely possible for PNAs to get involved. Um, I was reading about work from fiscal year 2018 that um, DLCV activists did. Um, they actually helped some trans people living in institutions to have rights to use the bathroom of, of their choices. Um, just projects like that would be a good place to start. I think it's also possible to get involved on a, a larger scale. I know in terms of pride events and a lot of LGBT spaces, people have been saying for years, literally years, that a lot of these events are not meeting the needs of community members with disabilities, whether they're not you know, wheelchair or mobility aid accessible, whether they're not sensory friendly. So I think, um, you know, incorporate or, you know, incorporating things like um, people who are able to use ASL and communicate, people who are able to just provide all sorts of resources for folks with disabilities to feel welcome, especially since a lot of these spaces are, you know, they're very much promoting an air of, you know, pride and self-acceptance and loving yourself for who you are, which is incredibly hypocritical if you're not you know, extending that message to everybody in the community who serves, you know, a role in that community. There are plenty of people with disabilities who are also LGBT and also, you know, have a voice and have a right to participate in, you know, these celebrations of identity. So I think getting involved in large scale events, just promoting, you know, even just having a booth and saying, hey, we're DLCV, we're affirming, you know, you can come talk to us, we can help you, we're here for you, that that sort of thing is a good way to start as well as, you know, just general community is the event accessible sort of things. Absolutely, that's such a great point. I think it, getting your head wrapped around the intersectionality of these things and how they work together can be really difficult, but I think you, you've given us some amazing ideas for how to get a good start on that, which is just talk to people, start getting involved, start getting out in the community. Um, so thank you so much. We so appreciate you coming on to chat with us about all of this. Yes, thank you so much, Jax. It's been amazing to listen to you and to for you to put so much effort and time into the research you've done for the trans community. Everyone needs assistance with disability. Thank you so very much for 
what you've done. Absolutely. And again, we're also especially proud of you because you're one of our social work interns. So we're so excited to see you, (laughs) to get to have you on the podcast and show off your expertise. Of course. I mean, this is clearly something that I really love talking about. So if anyone has any other questions, um, feel free to reach out to me about it. Um, In the meantime, I have enjoyed talking with you all. I've been enjoyed um, I've enjoyed being able to share all this wonderful research that I was able to find. And thank you so much for all your questions. This has been an awesome experience. And now a DLCV highlight. Supported decisions making is an important approach to ensure people with disabilities retain their legal rights while simultaneously receiving support from trusted family and friends when needed. Virginians with disabilities have many options to document their preferences about care and substitute decision-making. We've updated our supported decision-making resources page to include videos, do-it-yourself power of attorney forms, and many other self-advocacy tools. Check it out online at www.dlcv.org supported-decision-making. So it was great to have Jax on, wasn't it? It was so wonderful. Like we talked about, I think there's so much for so many people to learn on this. And I think you and I learned quite a bit today too, Valerie. So we're we're so glad. Yes, I have to agree with that. He talks, uh, he gave us so much data and research about uh, the trans community. And I really love the terminology he provided for us. Exactly. I think that's something that some people, some very well-meaning people can have difficulty with, um, including including me. So it's great to have somebody who knows their stuff coming in to talk with us and educate us on that. Very true. Once again, thank you, Jax, for all you've provided for us. Thank you, Jax. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Rights Here, Rights Now, brought to you by the Disability Law Center of Virginia. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. If you need assistance or want more information about DLCV and what we do, visit us online at dlcv.org. Follow us on Twitter at Disability Law VA and share us with your friends. Until next time, I'm Valerie. And I'm Suzanne. And this has been Rights Here rights now.